This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.32, Saturday in the Park, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan and a connoisseur of the goofy faces Camille makes. (laughs) And I'm Nina, new to Zeta and having a hard time caring about these characters. Yes, even poor little Shinta and Kum. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 279 patrons. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest patrons, Scott M., Panatier, Randall, Noah R., Jamie, Soultaker3, Caroline M., and Rowan M. Patrons, depending on level, get a shout-out on the podcast, entry in all of our seasonal giveaways, recognition on our website, access to a patron discord, bonus content, behind-the-scenes exclusives, and physical Mobile Suit Breakdown merch like art prints, pins, and t-shirts. Find out more at GundamPodcast.com Patreon. And special thanks to Kevin A. for sending us a box of my favorite tea from our wish list. In case anyone is curious, it's the sweet and spicy ginger tea packets comes in little crystals. So good. (laughs) As you might imagine, there are a lot of reference books, magazines, and other research material that we wish we had access to. Not to mention recording equipment, office supplies, and tea to keep our voices in tip-top shape. The link to the wishlist is at the bottom of our homepage, GundamPodcast.com. This week, we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Episode 31, Half Moon Love. After the recap and our talkback, our research for this episode includes a preliminary investigation into ice cream in Japan and part two of our research piece on the Young Officers' Revolt of February 26th, 1936. But first, let's tune in to TNN. Tonight, on an all-new episode of The Tea with LT, Nina Nina's daughter. Get ready for investigative journalism, Titan style, as we drop a colony worth of information on... Hey, uh, sorry, Lieutenant. I just got off the phone with the network. They, uh, don't want us using that tagline. Are you kidding me? It's just meant to convey the vast scale of the information that Lieutenant Nina's daughter and her team will be imparting during the course of the episode. Yeah, no, I get that. It's just that in light of recent incidents, the folks upstairs think it's a bad idea for us to put the words Titans, Drop, and Colony in the same sentence. Let's go ahead and have you read the backup tagline. <sighs> okay. You can't evade the searing light of the truth, because tonight on The Tea, our mega-truth launcher will utterly disintegrate your ignorance as we- Uh, let's move on to number three. <clears throat> Fine, okay. 
take a deep breath, because tonight on TNN's The T, award-eligible investigative journalist Lieutenant Nina Nina's daughter will flood your air supply with a lethal dose of news. Oh, come on! Uh, sorry, sir, that one's not going to work either. Tell you what, you read the rest of the promo, and we will run some uh, new taglines past the sensors. <sighs> okay. You got this, Thompson. Do it for Moar. Lieutenant Nina's daughter will take a camera crew right to the front to interview Titan's rising star and genius commander, Gotti Kinsey, about his innovative new approach to space battle. And you call this system of yours tactics? Are you worried that you will be sued by the Tic Tac's brand for infringing on their trademark? She asks the hard-hitting questions. Is it true that you were inspired to develop your groundbreaking pincer maneuver after studying crabs on Earth's delightful beaches? Why did you call it a pincer maneuver when you could have called it crab battle? She's not afraid to get personal. Some people claim you look like a reanimated corpse, but sexy. What is your skincare regimen? And she gets the answers Earthnoids demand. How many dimensions are there in space? Two? Two and a half? Don't miss out. All right, how was that? Great, just great. And we fixed the other problem too. I'm sending Lou in with the new scripts. And this one's okay? Uh, yep. All right. You'd better be ready, because tonight, Lieutenant Nina and Nina's daughter and the T are going to tear investigative journalism a new... And now the recap for Half Moon Love. Heavily damaged in the most recent attack, the Argama stops in Vambran City for repairs before taking Quattro to his meeting with Axis. Shinta and Kum are eager to explore and beg Fa to take them to Armstrong Plaza, but she is busy with repair work and preparations for the ship's departure, and they leave in a sulk. Camille, Apoli, and Astanaji all urge her to take a break. The fighting has become more dangerous, and they will be leaving Shinta and Kum in Vambran. This may be her last chance to spend time with them before they leave. But Fa is firm. There's too much to do, and too little time. She can't possibly take the afternoon off to take the kids to a park. While she is working, Torres sees Shinta and Kum head toward one of the ship's exits. When he asks where they are going, they tell him, Armstrong Plaza, and he assumes Fa must be taking them. It is some time before anyone notices they are missing, and a panicked Fa enlists Camille to help search for them. Just outside the city, Sarah lands in a new MS, the Hambrabi, accompanied by an engineer and several other mobile suits and pilots. After opening the cockpit, the engineer hands Sarah a small bag and reminds her to finish the operation within the time limit and get back safely. She jets off in her normal suit and verniers. Inside the city, Sarah changes into casual clothes from inside the bag, transforming herself into a normal, fashionable girl. As she walks down the street, she suddenly senses something strange and spots Camille talking to Fa nearby. Ducking into a shop, she manages to avoid being spotted, although Camille also feels something familiar. When he notices the same feeling while searching the park for Shinta and Kum, he wonders if it could possibly be for Murasame. The gate to the spaceport is inside the park, and nearby loudspeakers announce the imminent departure of the shuttle to Granada. 
Sarah goes in through service entrance, pretending to be lost when a guard stops her. He leans in to examine her ticket, and Sarah takes the opportunity to knock him out. Deeper into the building, she finds a machine room and cuts her way into one of the pipes, dropping a small, boxy object inside before leaving the way she came. Although she tries to slip away through the park, blending in with the crowd, Camille is struck again by the strange feeling or sense, and as he looks for the source, he sees Sarah. Yelling for her to stop, he chases and catches her. Sarah seems intent on charming her way out of trouble, but Camille isn't having it. I always knew you were dangerous, he tells her. Sarah asks him what makes her so different from normal girls out in the park having fun with their friends. But when he tells her she can leave the Titans, run away and live a normal life, she insists that it's impossible. In a fit of sympathy, Camille runs to a nearby ice cream stand and buys two cones. Fa, still trying to find the children, is surprised to see him there and asks what he's doing. Camille seems abashed, but also thoughtful, telling her that something strange is going on and she ought to return to the Argama and warn Captain Bright that Titans are attempting some kind of operation in Von Braun. Waiting on a nearby bench, Sarah is wondering why she doesn't just run when Camille returns with the ice cream. Why are you being so nice to me, she asks him. When he says she reminds him of someone, she is quick to tease him and ask if she reminds him of his girlfriend. I hope she thinks so, Camille tells her, before standing up, his tone abruptly shifting from sympathetic to angry. Because of you, Katz no longer trusts anyone. I never want to see you again. If I see you on the battlefield, I will kill you. He strides away with Sarah following him. Wait, you mustn't return to the Argama! Camille demands to know why, and Sarah, checking the time, tells him that she planted a bomb that will destroy the plaza and the spaceport. It's set to go off in 30 minutes, and she doubts anyone can stop it now, but Camille is determined to try, dragging her after him to the control room near the park. He pages Fa, telling her to warn the Argama crew about the bomb, and tells the control room operators they ought to order the evacuation of the plaza and the spaceport before making Sarah show him the bomb's location. Trying desperately to reach the bomb, Camille only manages to knock it further down the pipe, too far for anyone to retrieve it now. At this point, Sarah tries to run, but Camille tackles her, knocking her to the ground and punching her in the stomach. She goes limp, and he throws her over his shoulder, heading back into the park as everyone else is leaving it. The residents of Von Braun rush to take shelter behind blast doors, leaving the plaza dark and empty. Apolli arrives in a mobile suit to retrieve Camille and Sarah, and they return to the Argama. The ship manages to launch just in time to get away from the explosion, but it seems they will have to move on without the repairs they so desperately need. The mobile suits that had been waiting for Sarah attack, and in the confusion of the fight, Sarah manages to escape the Argama and return to her mobile suit. The Titans retreat, their mission only partially successful. And Camille can't understand why Sarah, so clearly conflicted about being a pilot, would return to the Titans. A grieving Fa, certain that Shintan Kum were caught in the blast, returns to her room after the fight only to hear the shower running. She finds the two children hiding there. They explain they didn't want to say goodbye to her, and they knew she'd never look for them in the shower. Crying with relief, she scolds them and demands they never do anything like this again, but her smile proves she isn't truly angry 
and she pulls them both into a hug. So this episode for me was a uh, object lesson in the danger of overthinking design stuff. You overthinking? What? Say it ain't so. All right. So in this episode, we get a new mobile suit. It's the Titans use Hanburabi in English or the Hanburabi in Japanese. It's a transformable mobile suit in its mobile armor configuration. It looks like a stingray. I think that's a pretty clear visual reference there doesn't require a ton of analysis but then it transforms and it's got like big old shoulder pads and kind of like wings and a very pointy head super conical pointy hat so i'm looking at this the shape of it the design the hat the shoulder pads all the unique features of the humbrabi i start putting it together you know the big stiff shoulders and the cape like uh wing bits make me think of the kataginu, which is a kind of medieval Japanese vest jacket that has big, stiff shoulders and then hang in wing bits. <laughs> and I do think there's some of that there. And then I start looking at the conical helmet. And I'm looking at Heian-era court hats, which were big conical hats. And I'm looking at the medieval-era samurai helmets that were designed to kind of look like those court hats and that were worn by some of the highest-ranking warlords. And then I just looked at the Japanese Wikipedia page for the Titans mobile suits, because there is a Japanese Wikipedia page for the Titans mobile suits. And the pointy head of the Hambrabi is based on the hoods worn by the Ku Klux Klan. Wow. Yeah. Okay, then. So if you were wondering if you're supposed to feel any sympathy for the Titans. Merp, merp. Merp, merp, indeed. Although, interestingly, the Hambrabi, it's a Nagano design. He loves his weird pointy mobile suits. Uh, it was originally designed to be an AU use mobile suit. But once it was designed, they looked at it and they said, that looks too evil. That has to be an enemy mobile suit. And it wasn't originally called the Hambrabi. It was at various times called uh, the Kuraksu from the Klux in Ku Klux Klan. And then it was called the Metasu. That's too much like the Methus. That is the name of the Methus. Oh. Metasu is the Japanese for Methus, mm -hmm. which led me to finally figure out where the name Methus comes from. So one of the things about the Hambrabi, which you might not notice just from looking at it, is that it has mono eyes all over its body. It has five mono eyes in all to give it a panoramic view despite having a mono eye. Me for eye. Tasu means a lot of. So the methus comes from metasu, a lot of eyes. And then they did the Gundam thing and <laughs> shuffled the names around, which is how the methus ended up on a mobile suit that does not, in fact, have a lot of eyes. And the Hamrabi ended up being called the Hamrabi, which it gets from Hamurabi. No one knows why. Hamurabi of the famous legal code. Indeed. The ancient Babylonian king Hamurabi. Speaking of design, we get much more time spent on the sort of panorama of Von Braun City from the outside and the inside. But the outside is what gave me pause because suddenly we already know that a lot of the city is underground, at least partially. There are skylights and things, but it's built into the moon. And yet there are a bunch of skyscrapers. 
Yeah, they're all like set into caves or under rock overhangs on the lunar surface. But why skyscrapers? I guess everybody likes a view, but skyscrapers are the future. Skyscrapers are progress. My final design note. Sarah's outfit would not look at all out of place now, except for the black gloves. What is with the gloves? (laughs) I don't know. Gloves are slightly easier to draw than hands. That might be why. And they did do a bunch of close-ups on her hands when she was manipulating the tools. You don't have to put in a bunch of detail if she's wearing gloves. But yeah, the the like bra top or crop top with the loose cropped pants and the long jacket and the beret. <laughs> like, and she had quite an elaborate necklace. It was like a multi-strand necklace. Yeah, she looked very stylish for the 2020s. Fashion is cyclical. We're coming back to the 80s again. This really feels like an episode about Sarah. Yeah, I have a complaint to register on that. Oh. On that note. Watching Zeta, it feels like we're in a pinball machine and every character is a different target in the pinball machine and we are just ricocheting back and forth between different characters. And so many have been introduced and so few have been properly developed. In First Gundam, we followed our core white base crew from Side 7 to Abawaku. A few new people were added, a few people died along the way, and when they died, it was very impactful because we had known Ryu Jose for 20 episodes, and not just like a little bit, he had been in practically every episode, at least in some capacity. And served a significant role. And now, it's hard to imagine a character more important, more iconic of Zeta Gundam than, say, Quattro Bagina. But Quattro has not been a major part of any episode in like 10, 15 episodes. At best, he gets cameo roles. He hasn't shared a scene with Camille, the main character, in at least 10 episodes. Now I'm trying to think if there are any characters I would really feel bad about losing. And maybe like Apoli or Astonaji. Those dudes have been through a lot. They have, but they've gotten shockingly little development. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think uh, my feelings there would be because the show has earned them. <laughs> I think it's because in my head, I have like given them extra backstory. <laughs> <laughs> I have a theory of Sarah in this episode that I would like to pose to you. This entire episode is about her position in between, in between childhood and adulthood. Like she's sort of the er teen in this episode and sort of bouncing between these two aspects of her seeming childish, seeming adult, seeming childish, seeming adult, and not really being either. And she's also caught in between the desire to be an ordinary girl and the desire to be a loyal and effective soldier for Paptimus Sama. See, I don't know how sincere she was being. When? When she said, nobody thinks of me as a girl. (laughs) At that point, she was in manipulating mode. She had switched into her, like, coquettish, ingenue kind of... It's just, like, patently untrue. You broke Katz's heart. (laughs) And yet, why did she tell Camille about the bomb? She could very easily have let him go to his death. She cared enough about Camille or was so overcome by new type feelings and the taste of ice cream that she did give away the whole operation. Well, I think I'm going to take the title of the episode at its word. She's at least half in love. Mm. And so young that she can't even identify that, that she doesn't understand it. 
when he goes to get the ice cream, she's sitting there thinking like, why am I waiting for him? Why am I like anxious for him to come back? What is this? <laughs> and when he says, oh, you remind me of somebody, her first question is your lover, your girlfriend. Camille asks her the same question. He says, why did you help me then? And she says, something was wrong with me. And how many of us once upon a time have felt that <laughs> when we had a crush or were in love? Especially as teenagers. Something is wrong with me. And then I said a stupid thing. Yeah. There's this lovely moment where she's on her way to go do the sabotage. And she's in her cute outfit and she catches her reflection in a window. And she's smiling and running down the street and watching her reflection that just feels so young, right? I'm like, oh, you're 14 or 16 <laughs> or I don't know how old you're supposed to be, but you're a young teen. And then crashing into an adult and having to be like, ah, sorry. And, and to some degree, even the coquettishness, which you brought up, feels a bit young to me because it's the only arrow in her quiver. Every time she gets into trouble, she does this. And I couldn't help wondering, is that because it's worked in the past? But it didn't work on Camille to begin with. So why would she think it would work now? And it doesn't really work on him this time either. Is it what she's been taught to do? Is it just all that she knows? Uh, she clearly has no other basis in her head for attempting to gain the trust of or bond with a man. Yeah. And she has a gun. <laughs> she could have shot him. Camille has a comment later on where he's like, this girl, she could have escaped at any moment, but she didn't. Which, Camille, what, did, what are you talking about? She tried to escape twice and both times you caught her. That time you were saying she could have escaped at any moment, you were carrying her on your back because you had to knock her unconscious because of the time she tried to escape. Come on, Camille. There's also the moment where she says, let go of me, I won't run. And he lets go of her and she doesn't run. That is true. And she does sort of help him try to disable the bomb. And yeah, she's clearly conflicted, but she doesn't shoot him, which that's something. I would put money on... Sarah, having been instructed by Paptimus Sama that seduction is your first and best weapon. ABS, always be seducing. Yeah, I mean, points in the more grown-up column. She's being entrusted with a very important mission, and she takes on a great deal of responsibility. And for the most part, people treat her as an adult soldier. That's the appearance that we get from her interactions with the engineer, from her interactions with other people on her own crew. When Camille confronts her about her alignment <laughs> about her participation in the conflict as a member of the Titans, she tries to boil it all down to chance and completely absolve herself of responsibility. It's like, oh, I just happened to meet Paptimus first and that's why I'm a Titan and there's nothing I can do about it. And she also makes the totally sort of false leap of logic that, oh, Camille just doesn't understand how kind Sirocco is. It doesn't matter if he's kind. <laughs> if he's doing monstrous things, the fact that he's kind to you is irrelevant. It's not irrelevant for Sarah. You know, that bit about there's nothing that can be done about it, I just encountered Sirocco first, made me think of the communion that Amuro and Lala had back in First Gundam before she died when she's like, why did we have to meet each other now? Why couldn't we have met before? Why couldn't we have met before I met Shar? If this is fate, this is too cruel. But Sarah could have gone over to the Ayuk side. It's been done before. She had an opportunity the first time. Yeah. She doesn't really want to. Paptimus's 
psychological hold over her is too strong. And if Camille hadn't spotted her, she would have blithely killed probably hundreds of civilians. Yep. Not a lot of sympathy for Sarah. I mean, the most sympathetic I get is that she was probably picked up as a very young orphan and is in a similar situation to four, where she's grown up in an abusive environment and feels entirely dependent on these people for her continued existence. She can't really even begin to imagine a life separate from it because this has been her whole survival up until now. And Soroko is the only one who is giving her that heady cocktail of affirmation, physical affection, and maybe a little bit of new type stuff too. Maybe that's why she's so willing to spend the time with Camille and why she then is so taken with him that she does give away the mission. Camille's nice to her. Camille's giving her attention. Here's a question. When Camille can sense her but hasn't seen her yet, he wonders if it's four. And then he actually sees four in his mind the second time he senses her. Do you think, well, you probably know, I think (laughs) there must be some common sort of signature or feeling to cyber new types. Because he's met other new types, but cyber new types so far, just Rosamia and four, And Rosamia was a long time ago, and that was like two fights. Um, God, speaking of lots of characters who wind up not mattering at all. Right. Along with Blutark and Wooder and Namikar Cornell, Stephanie Luo. Oh my God, (laughs) too many people. Hayato, frankly, (laughs) he didn't need to be in this show. (laughs) He didn't really need to be in First Gundam either, but we don't begrudge him with a chance. Yeah, the, the only explanation I can think of for his being reminded of four by Sarah's presence is if there's some sort of common feeling to cyber new types that he hasn't felt since he saw four and that is confusing him here a little bit. That's possible. It's also possible that he's just picking up like that is a young female pilot, ambiguously my enemy, emotionally damaged with very colorful hair. Kind of into me. There's a lot of commonality between Four and Sarah, besides the possibility of Sarah also being a cyber new type. Which we end this episode still uncertain about. I don't feel uncertain about it. Do you think she is or isn't? Is. Okay. She has like three of those moments with Camille. Well, but she could just be a new type. Mm, I see what you're saying. I'm still unclear on the difference. My assumption thus far is that cyber new types are at least somewhat made, whether that's through training or drugs or surgery or some combination of all of the above. And I've always sort of assumed that even cyber new types have to have some new type ability just to get started. And then the cyber part is about strengthening that and bringing it out. Whereas new types without the cyber, the strengthening of their abilities comes about completely naturally and unintentionally. And important to remember also that cyber new type is the English translation. The Japanese is kyoka ningen, enhanced human. So there's actually no new typeness inherent in the term as it's being written and, and said in the original script. Here's an interesting thing that comes right out of that. When Camille says, you remind me of somebody, and Sarah asks, your lover, your girlfriend, Camille says, I hope she thinks of me that way. Yeah, that was interesting. They did not have a nice parting. No, and they didn't even have a particularly good togethering when they were actually together. 
they did share a kiss. We know that's a big deal. And maybe that explains some of the distance that still remains between Fa and Camille, especially when he had just come back. And maybe that explains some of those faraway looks he gets sometimes. I don't think Sarah is the only one somewhat confused about their feelings here. (laughs) Because Camille behaves, frankly, kind of erratically. I can understand him not telling Fa that he sensed someone in that clothing store because he doesn't totally understand the things that he's sensing. And I don't think he's ever talked to Fa about it before. And so it would be weird to be like, no, I can feel someone in there. But one, he rushes off to buy ice creams. And he rushes off. Like he darts away. Yeah. Leaving the suspicious enemy pilot sitting on a park bench. And this is when she says, why am I not just running away? Why am I sitting here eagerly awaiting his return? And when Fa comes up behind him and says, what are you doing? He looks guilty and embarrassed. If you are a connoisseur of Camille making goofy faces, this is a choice episode. Oh, it's fabulous. It's a really good one. Uh, Oh, man. While Camille and Fa are talking, a random man just runs past in the background. He's holding a box or a... There's never any explanation. (laughs) There's just a a guy running (laughs) through the background. It's weird. Look, there's a lot of local color being shown in this episode. A lot of people standing around in the park. The three girls who walk by eating ice cream. But all of that stuff makes sense. (laughs) Running guy makes no sense. Not one little bit. And he tells her something isn't right. Please go to the Argaman Warren Bright. I'm going to try to figure out what's going on. And I think that's true. I don't think he's forgotten in the back of his mind that she's an enemy. But he also has this intense savior complex where he wants to save her from the Titans. He so desperately wants her to trust him so that he can save her. He wants to save all the girls. But after she makes the jibe about, oh, do I remind you of your girlfriend? Very shortly after that is when he says, you're the reason Katz doesn't trust anyone. I never want to see you again. And if I see you on the battlefield, I will destroy you. Camille is clearly operating on multiple levels here. He's both trying to figure out what Sarah was doing here, figure out why she was here and what the danger is. He's also trying to convince her that she can have a normal life, that she can leave the Titans and be a normal girl. And to some degree, he actually does kind of get caught up in the date. I think he is enjoying it a little bit. Also, he's still mad about the cats thing and she is an enemy pilot and he will destroy her. So just a minute ago, uh, we mentioned all of the local color in the park, all the people doing different things, and all the shops in Von Braun. It's all there to give you a sense of this as a living, peaceful, pleasant, normal town city, really, and to then endanger it, right? With the sabotage mission, we can see that all of this nice, pleasant, peaceful stuff is in danger. In the park, there are, I think I counted four statues. All of them are of women. One of them is of a Western-style, Catholic-style angel. One of them is a nude woman sitting with her back to you. And then there are two statues that both depict the Greek goddess Artemis or Diana. Hmm. They are similar statues, but different enough that we can be certain that they are different statues. I think they're based on real statues. After looking at some of the more famous ones of Diana slash Artemis, there are three that are particularly famous and I think might have been used as models. There's one in Mexico City, one in uh, used to be on a skyscraper in New York and is now in a art museum in Philadelphia. And then there's one in Hyde Park in London. 
The thing about Artemis, <laughs> the essential thing about her, is that she is the virgin huntress. And so in contrast to other warrior goddesses like Athena, she is explicitly a young woman and a warrior. And in the myths about her, she destroys all of the men who love her and the ones that she loves. Yeah, she would turn men who pursued her into deer and then sick her hunting dogs on them, which sounds like a pretty horrible way to go, if you ask me. The one man she was actually in love with, her brother got jealous and then killed him. Apollo. <laughs> so I think this small background detail is there because Sarah is kind of an Artemis or Diana figure. She's a young, dangerous woman who puts on this air of innocence and yet she destroys the men around her. There were a couple of things that I rather appreciated. I think part of the reason that Sarah does tell Camille about the bomb is because she's positive at that point he can't do anything about it. He can get to safety and she's grown fond of him or something. Um, but she doesn't think he can defuse or retrieve the bomb. I appreciate the show including a scenario where, despite Camille's best efforts, he can't fix it. All he can do is mitigate the disaster. He can't disarm the bomb. He tries to grab it and knocks it further into the systems. You know, all he can do is damage control. Uh, and he's had a lot of success lately, and it's good for from a character perspective <laughs> to have some setbacks now and again. And that he is, despite all of his best efforts, not able to save Sarah. You know, his version of save. She looks a little sad at the end, but no more so than when she abandoned cats. I found those two pieces basically parallel, because when she says bye to cats, doesn't she say something like, I really did like you, and then hops into her mobile suit <laughs> and goes away. Yeah. And to Camille, it's like, the ice cream was delicious, and then <laughs> hops into her mobile suit and goes away. <laughs> Um, I would be interested in re-listening to the bit at the end and trying to catch the uh, the Japanese for this, but there's that moment where he's angrily firing his gun into the air, where he says, why do you submit yourself to being ruined? Yes. Which is such a weird phrase. I liked it. It's awkward. Like, you wouldn't say that, but I thought Camille just meant that going back to the Titans meant giving up any hope at a normal, peaceful, enjoyable life. And it just meant going down this dark road, like Jared, becoming less and less human. Right back at you, Camille. <laughs> just because he's fighting for Abe doesn't mean he's going to get out of this unscathed. Oh, I don't think he's entirely talking about her. <laughs> I think this whole episode is a study in... Like Camille saying to Sarah things that he wishes he could say to Fa and that somebody needs to say to him. And frankly, Camille's obsession with saving these women, especially the enemy pilots, but also Fa and Rekua, even Emma a little bit. I think a lot of it can be traced back to episode three when he could not save his mother, his mother who dedicated her entire life to the military industrial complex and then was consumed by it. One thing that bothers me about this episode, in retrospect, is that the sort of framing, the original action or conflict of the episode is Shinta and Kum go missing, and everybody thinks they went into the city by themselves. 
this becomes almost immediately overshadowed by Sarah and Camille, by the bomb threat, by the fight afterwards, which Fa has mere moments to be like, oh no, like, I'm sure they got caught in the explosion. And that immediately gets trampled all over. Like, we don't have time to think about that because we're going away. And then again, she looks a little sad going into her room, but almost immediately she sees a a damp horror (laughs) roll out and she finds the kids. Like, if you just needed to get them off the ship, Bright could have ordered Fa and Camille to go into town. He could have said, you guys are working really hard. Go into town. Be back by X time. It would not even have been... It would have been so normal as to not even require comment if the show had just started in media race with Fa and Camille in the park. Or Camille and someone else. If Fa and Camille feels too, like, does that mean they're on a date? Mm-hmm. He could have been there with Astanaji, their buddies. Um, oh, but now I'm imagining Astanaji coming up behind Camille while he's buying ice cream. Like, Camille, why are you buying two ice creams? <laughs> Is one of them for Astanaji? <laughs> oh, But yeah, it just, I think it feels like bad storytelling to include this really emotionally loaded aspect of the story and then completely bury it under a bunch of other stuff so that you never really get any emotional payoff from it. Like, there's a little bit of like, oh, yay, the kids aren't dead. (laughs) Uh, But it didn't feel like as much relief. It didn't feel like as much sadness as it should have. Mm -hmm. And part of that is Shintan Kum haven't really been given much to do. So we're not really that attached to them. I feel a little bad saying that, but... Yeah, their personalities at this point are scamps one and two. But that's Zeta characterization. It's the pinball. We keep ricocheting around and we're never given enough time with anybody to develop them into characters we really care about. I think the Shinta and Kum... I'm not even going to call it a B plot. It's like a C plot in this episode. It does two things which it kind of needs to do. One of them is it explains why Shinta and Kum are still on the ship, even though they intended to leave them in Von Braun. They could have left out completely that they intended to leave. They didn't even need to mention that. Precisely. (laughs) That's a element added to the episode and then resolved in the episode. Not entirely necessary, although it is a callback to a much more impactful scene in First Gundam when they're leaving Jaburo. And the kids are supposed to stay behind at Jaburo, but the kids run away, are in danger. There's a time bomb. And ultimately, the kids survive and convince the Jaburo officials that they should remain on the white base. That was a much more emotional episode. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And so this is, to some degree, Zeta doing First Gundam again and not doing it as well. But the other thing it does is it brings motherhood back into the story again. And in that initial conversation when everyone is urging Fa, you know, do something other than piloting. Spend some time with the kids. Enjoy yourself. Go into town. Do like a normal person thing. Yeah. Their their sort of exhortations here felt less gross to me than they have in other episodes because it did feel like it was more about the kids are leaving soon and we know you're close to them. You should spend some time with them before they get put off the ship. But even seeing that element of it and liking it a little bit, part of the problem is that the show has not established what Fa would do if she weren't a pilot and she weren't a surrogate mother. Imagine a hypothetical scenario where those kids aren't there. 
What would Camille tell Fa to go do? Ha. <laughs> Instead of piloting. Nothing. He would scold her for not being a serious enough pilot. Even after trying to encourage her to go relax for a little while, we then get the very silly scene of Camille propped at his elbows in bed writing in his diary. Fa's resolution as a pilot. <laughs> Big ol' smile on his face. I'm frequently hesitant to blame Zeta for this because I worry that it's a little bit of the fault of the job, but... But I just don't care about the Zeta characters as much as I cared about the first Gundam characters. I think that's fair. They're not as likable. And we haven't been given the same opportunities to like them. There are too many characters. They're being introduced and disposed of too quickly. And much more so than in first Gundam, they are not likable people. A lot of them have some good qualities. Some of them are trying to do the right thing, but just they're much less sympathetic. I suspect that's intentional. When people talk about Zeta being a darker, grimmer take on the Gundam universe, a lot of that comes down to the characters. Well, and the much more obvious, there are no good guys. Yeah. There are less bad guys, but there are no good guys. Did you notice when the bomb explodes, the footage of the first explosion is pulled from the opening? <laughs> Hey, if you've got a good explosion. Just keep using it over and yeah. over and over again. Explosions are expensive. We just watched episode three of Keep Your Hands Off Azoken, where they talk about this. How you can really just animate one explosion and then use it over and over again for animators on a budget. Yeah, if you're curious about the process of making anime, this season's new anime, Keep Your Hands Off Azoken does a really good job of talking about the nuts and bolts of it in a beautiful and engaging way. We're only three episodes in, but it receives a solid recommendation from Mobile Suit Breakdown. And now our research. We have part one of Ice Cream in Japan and the conclusion of Tom's research on the Young Officers' Rebellion of 1936. I felt like a fun cultural research piece this week, and so when Tom suggested looking into the history of ice cream in Japan, I jumped at it. Little did I know that I would find very little information in English. <laughs> Thankfully, there is an incredible wealth of information in Japanese, thanks to the webpage of the Nihon Ice Cream Kyokai, or Japan Ice Cream Association. <laughs> but I'm going to need a little more time to finish that research since I'm a pretty slow reader in Japanese. Today I'll talk about what I've learned so far, and you can expect even more detail and industry insider information in next week's episode. Milk and dairy products were not part of the diet of the people of the Japanese archipelago through most of history. There was some limited exposure to Mongolian cheeses through trade with China and Korea, uh, but that would have been spotty. Ice, however, spent a large portion of human history as a luxury item, including in Japan. Apparently, the emperor Nintoku was given a gift of ice and was so taken with it, he made Ice Day a holiday on which he would give his courtiers gifts of ice. Anywhere where you don't have ice year-round, summertime ice is the utmost luxury. <laughs> what era was Nintoku? Ah, so Nintoku is firmly in the legendary uh. part of the histories. 
there are no firm dates for his life or reign. He is conventionally considered to have reigned from 313 to 399. He was the 16th emperor of Japan. So whether true or not, this story about him receiving the ice was important enough to become part of the legendary history of the Japanese emperors. The first Japanese people to taste ice cream, however, were members of the late Edo period delegation to the United States. They got to have some during their visit at one of the many receptions that were held for them, and were completely struck by this delicious and unusual treat. Because of the circumstances around this first experience, it became heavily associated with Western entertaining and hospitality, and was frequently served at the Rokumeikan. Which was a hall constructed by the Japanese government specifically to hold Western-style events and entertainments like garden parties, ballroom dances, fundraising bazaars for charity,、uh, as well as receptions for foreign dignitaries. I bet those young officers hated the Rokumeikan. I imagine they did. <laughs> It was a flashpoint. The Rokumeikan was a symbol of. For the Japanese people, Westernization and modernization, and since those two ideas were often conflated of both of them at the same time, and how you felt about the Rokumeikan had a lot to do with how you felt about Japanese internal politics, and it was a flashpoint for political unrest for ever, I guess. Yeah,、uh, a lot of people were particularly scandalized by the ballroom dancing because not only were men and women spending time together, but touching each other. Holding each other, basically, in public, no less. It was pretty scandalous.、Stuff. Imagine what they would have thought about men and women eating ice cream together in public. Dairy farming and consumption is considered to have been introduced to Japan during the Meiji period. We talk about the Meiji period a lot. It was marked by rapid, deliberate Westernization from the late 1860s to the early 19-teens. One thing that government officials noticed was that Westerners were large. And seemed quite healthy and strong. They made the connection between meat and dairy consumption and physical size and strength. Since the main reason to westernize was to be competitive, quote unquote, on the world stage, coming up with national nutrition guidelines for schools and recommendations for the home was a high priority. Meat had previously been banned by Buddhist edict. The edict was lifted. But rather than announce that they were lifting the edict, they instead spread a story in the news and on the radio that the emperor himself enjoyed eating meat. They used the same method to encourage people to consume dairy, spreading the story that the emperor liked to drink two glasses of milk each day. The first dairies were government-owned and established in Hokkaido. I don't know why specifically, but if I had to guess, it's because Hokkaido is less densely populated and has more grazing land than the other islands. And dairy products are still, to this day, considered a Hokkaido specialty. In addition to milk, cheese and ice cream became popular ways to consume dairy, and the first ice cream was produced in Yokohama just two years into the Meiji era. However, through the early 1900s, ice cream was only available in a few major cities, at specialty soda fountains, ice cream parlors, and at a couple of large stores. It was a luxury item and far too expensive for most people. Among the stores to open their own ice cream parlors, the one that stood out to me was Shiseido, a company you might know for its beauty products. But their Ginza location had an ice cream parlor, which became famous for its French style of ice cream. Ooh! I don't know what that means exactly. It sounds as if their recipe included more egg yolk as well as both lemon and vanilla flavorings. 
I don't know if you noticed this, but in this episode, while Camille goes to an ice cream stand in the park to get the soft serve cones for him and Sarah, when Sarah is just walking around the streets of Von Braun City at the beginning of the episode, she passes a French-style ice cream parlor. Hmm. I did not notice. That's interesting. Ice cream manufacturing really got started in the Taisho period, 1912 to 1926, with freezer and production technology studied in the United States and brought back to Japan. Before that, ice cream was only made in restaurants or specialty stores. Many of the big dairy companies got their start at this time, the biggest of which are still around today, companies like Meiji Milk and Morinaga. This meant that ice cream began to appear in stores for people to buy and take with them. At this point, it would mostly have been in high-end department stores. One of the most popular products came out in 1923. It was a brick of ice cream with stripes of three flavors, like what we call Neapolitan ice cream here in the United States, except that instead of chocolate, strawberry, and vanilla, it was chocolate, strawberry, and lemon. Another major change of the late Taisho and early Showa periods is that vendors started to sell ice cream from specially equipped bicycles. In Showa year 10, 1935, Yuki Jirushi Dairy Products Company created the innovation of ice cream packaged in single-serving cups. It was around this time that ice cream became widely available enough and cheap enough that it began to be associated with summertime for many Japanese people. Ice cream was a huge morale booster for troops all over the world throughout World War II, although the Japanese government ordered ice cream to be produced at a price so low it was impossible for manufacturers to make it. And even if they had wanted to, most of the dairy production was being requisitioned by the military. So there was no consistent ice cream production in Japan during the war. While ice cream production was banned because of rationing in some countries, in the U.S. it was actually encouraged, thanks to the dairy lobby. And it was considered by the military, both the army and the navy, to be one of the essential uh, luxuries for morale. These were chewing gum, tobacco, and ice cream. If it was possible to get those out to the soldiers, then it had to be done. And one of the ways in which they did this in the Navy was to convert a barge for ice cream production. This barge could produce 10 gallons of ice cream every seven minutes, or approximately 500 gallons per shift. And there's a story, unfortunately I don't remember where I found this originally, but I'll look for it, from a Japanese combat engineer during the war who was talking about the experience of working on the Japanese military infrastructure and what a nightmare it was because Japan overstretched their supply lines. They didn't have the right equipment. They didn't have enough fuel. They didn't have enough anything. And so all these engineers are working in the jungles. They're building airstrips by hand or with ox carts because they don't have enough tractors. They don't have enough bulldozers. They don't have enough anything. They find out the U.S. Navy has a barge dedicated entirely to producing ice cream. And so this guy says, that's the moment I knew we were going to lose. There was nothing we could do. Yeah, that would be pretty dispiriting. On that happy note, I leave you. And next time, I should be able to provide much more detail about ice cream in Japan in the post-war period and into the 1980s. The Secret History of Soft Serve. This is part two of a two-part research piece on the Young Officers' Revolt of February 26, 1936, and its similarities to the conflict embroiling the Earth's sphere in UC87. Last week, I talked about the background and context behind the political violence in 1930s Japan, 
as well as the curious set of circumstances that created a tenuous alliance between Zaibatsu oligarchs and the radical anti-capitalists of the Young Officers Movement. Just as a quick content warning before I start towards the end of this piece, there is some mention of suicide. I'll give you a more specific warning when we get close. Now where were we? Ah, yes, Japan in 1936. While the world as a whole was still suffering the effects of the Great Depression, Japan's economy was performing quite well, according to most indicators. Yet those indicators masked the fact that the fruits of Japan's economic growth were increasingly enjoyed by a small handful of elites. Rapid industrialization and the introduction of Western-style capitalism had created a class of wealthy oligarchs, and while manufacturing surged, the common person's material standard of living remained terrible, as more and more of the national economic production was diverted to feed the insatiable military. The young officers believed in the sacred nation, the sacred emperor, and the sacred military. They saw the suffering of Japan's destitute people and concluded that this was the fault of the corrupt businessmen, bureaucrats, and nobles in the imperial court, who were interfering with the emperor and giving him bad advice. They believed that the solution to Japan's problems was to spend more money on the military and to use that military to enrich the Japanese empire by conquering the world. They viewed every politician with suspicion, and those politicians who vocally opposed the military's relentless demands for more money, them they considered traitors. The counselors inside the imperial court who supported these treasonous politicians were, likewise, marked out as traitors. For years, the young officers in the army had been itching to overthrow the government, but there were only around a hundred of them. They were ready to die for the cause, but they wanted to do more than just die, and that meant they needed the right opportunity and support from the right allies. Their allies included high-ranking military officers from the ideologically similar Imperial Way faction in the army's top echelon, as well as far-right nationalist politicians and business leaders, and the young, idealistic, and ambitious Crown Prince Chichibu. They also hoped that those allies included the emperor himself. But as for the opportunity, they almost revolted twice in 1931, when another faction within the army, the Sakurakai, it was a nationalist faction, plotted and then abandoned two coup d'etat attempts. They almost revolted again in 1932, when a group of young navy officers assassinated the prime minister, and again in 1934, when several of their members were caught trying to recruit military cadets for another coup attempt. By February 1936, they were so frustrated that so many promising opportunities had come to naught, but more importantly, they were running out of time. Their sympathies were known and their plots were suspected, and within a few months, their unit, the 1st Infantry Division, was scheduled to be shipped off to the fighting in Manchuria. 1936 was not the ideal opportunity that they had awaited. Their Imperial Way faction allies were out of favor in the army and had been removed from all of the most senior positions. The ultranationalist politicians had just suffered a crushing loss in the national elections. Prince Chichibu, their friend within the imperial household, had made such a nuisance of himself that he had been dispatched far away from the capital, ordered to cool his heels in Aomori. They had two things going for them. First, watching all of those other plots against the government fail had taught them a great deal about what they would need to do to succeed. And second, in January 1936, two months before the young officers' revolt, the Aizawa trial began. Aizawa was a member of the Imperial Way faction, and as I mentioned last week, 
he had assassinated the leader of the rival control faction. Aizawa's trial, before a military tribunal, was overseen by members of his own Imperial Way faction. Everyone in the courtroom was sympathetic to him, and he was given every opportunity to make his case to the Japanese people. He said what the young officers wanted to say, and Japan seemed to like what it was hearing. On the night of February 25th, hours before the attacks were to begin, the five ringleaders gathered the other young officers who had agreed to lead the rebellion and briefed them on the plan. Twenty-one in all, they gathered the non-commissioned officers under their command and explained what they planned to do. Each NCO was offered the choice to join the rebellion or leave. Most stayed, and none of those who left warned the authorities. Snow began to fall on Tokyo. Just after midnight the morning of February 26th, the first group of assassins, five civilians led by an army captain, departed by car. Their target was outside Tokyo, 60 miles away. The rebels had arranged things so that their men would be officers of the day in their regiments on the day of the rebellion. At 2 a.m., as the snow continued to fall, they mustered three regiments, informed their soldiers what they were going to do, issued them ammunition, and marched them out of barracks. The soldiers were not offered the same choice as the NCOs. They had to go. They had rifles and machine guns. Their officers had pistols and swords. They had drafted a list of six enemies of Japan who needed to die. One name had been removed at the last minute, Ikeda Seihin, director of the Mitsui Zaibatsu. He was paying the young officers, you see, and so he would be spared. At 5 a.m., the first group, about 100 soldiers, arrived at the home of Finance Minister Takahashi. 82 years old and pugnacious, the Finance Minister had clashed ceaselessly with the militarists for years. He was the staunchest opponent of their ever-growing budget requests. The rebels smashed through the gates, burst into the house, went up to the old man's bedroom, and shouting, Heavenly punishment, they killed him with sword and pistol while he slept. Still 5 a.m. While one group was murdering Takahashi in Akasaka, a second group stormed the home of 78-year-old Lord Keeper of the Privy Seal Saito, a former prime minister, an admiral, a hero of the Russo-Japanese War, but a political opponent of the Imperial Way faction, and a supporter of the London Naval Treaty. The guards inside were too afraid to fight back, so the rebels reached Saito's bedroom unobstructed. The only resistance they encountered was from Saito's wife, Haruko. Seeing the rebels in the hall, she tried to hold the bedroom door against them, but they overpowered her, forced their way in, and shot Saito repeatedly. When he fell, Haruko threw herself across his body and begged them to shoot her instead. They kept shooting the dead man, and several of the bullets wounded his widow. Going downstairs, they shouted three bonsai cheers to celebrate the great restoration of Japan that they were enacting. Still 5 a.m., 150 soldiers entered the home of Suzuki Kantaro, the Grand Chamberlain. An admiral, a destroyer commander during the legendary Battle of Tsushima, once the foremost expert on torpedo warfare, Suzuki had committed the unpardonable sin of supporting the London Naval Treaty. He tried to argue with the soldiers who had come to kill him, but a sergeant shot him. The leader of this group, a captain who had been friendly with Suzuki in the past, drew his sword to finish off the dying man, but Suzuki's wife begged to be allowed to do it herself. The captain agreed. He ordered his soldiers to salute the man they had just shot, and then departed. But Suzuki was not dead. Saved by his wife, he recovered from his wounds, 
and would one day become prime minister, overseeing Japan's surrender in the last days of World War II and the end of the empire. 5.45 a.m. The group of civilian assassins who left at midnight arrive at an inn in Yugawara. Here they found the retired Lord Keeper of the Privy Seal and avid Go player Makino Nobuaki, himself a militarist and nationalist whose influence within the imperial court, especially over key appointments, and whose support for the London Naval Treaty, had now gotten him marked for death. The assassins burst into the inn with swords and guns at the ready, but Makino's police guards opened fire. In the confusion, one policeman helped Makino and his daughter escape out the back. Not realizing that the 74-year-old man had escaped, the assassins burned down the inn and then retreated to tend to their wounds. Thirty of the soldiers from the group that murdered Saito in Yotsuya traveled by truck to Ogikubo on the western outskirts of Tokyo. At 6.30 a.m. they found the private residence of the Inspector of Military Education, Watanabe Jotaro. Him they hated fiercely and personally. He was a member of the control faction in the army, and it had been his appointment as Inspector of Military Education to replace the disgraced Mazaki that had inspired Aizawa's crime. Remember him? He's still on trial at this point. The young officers hated Watanabe so much that for months now, they had been sending him angry letters calling him all kinds of names and demanding his resignation. Here at his home, they encountered resistance. The front door of the house was locked against them, and when they opened fire on it, military police posted inside the house fired back. One of the young officers who knew the house led them around the unguarded rear entrance. They forced their way in and rushed upstairs. Watanabe's wife met them there and demanded to know who they were, whose orders they were following. She tried to shame them, asking whether they were even Japanese soldiers. They shoved her aside. In his bedroom, the old general had thrown his mattress off the bed and was using it for cover. Seeing this, one of the young officers called up machine guns, and they gunned Watanabe down. Meanwhile, 45 soldiers seized the offices of the Asahi Shimbun newspaper. They herded the terrified employees together and one of the young officers informed them that the time had come for the traitorous Asahi Shimbun to receive the punishment of heaven. With that, he gave the order to his soldiers, and they began turning over the printing cases and dumping out the 4,000-odd pieces of movable type used to print the newspaper. Then they got back in their trucks and drove around to the other Tokyo newspapers to distribute their manifesto. I really thought that was going to go darker. Yeah, me too. Elsewhere. 300 soldiers surrounded Prime Minister Okada's residence. He was the most important target. For some of the young officer's backers, killing Okada and bringing down his cabinet was the sole purpose of this whole bloody excursion. They forced their way past the main gate, but police officers inside opened fire on them. In the ensuing shooting, three policemen were killed, and the whole house was roused to the danger. Quickly, Okada's brother-in-law, Matsuo Denzo, rushed him outside to hide in a shed in the garden. When Matsuo tried to return to the house, he was caught by a group of rebels. Mistaking Matsuo the brother-in-law for Okada the prime minister, the rebels shot him dead as he screamed banzai at them. To confirm that they had killed the right man, they retrieved the official portrait of Okada that had been hanging at the front hall. But it was dark. The portrait had been shattered by bullets in the initial firefight, and Matsuo really did look a bit like his brother-in-law. Believing their mission accomplished, the rebels drank a toast. And before they departed, Okada, unable to bear the brutal cold any longer, snuck past the celebrating rebels and back into his house. He was discovered by two maids who hid him in a closet in their quarters. 
With their assassinations completed and unaware that they had missed three of their targets, the rebels and their 1,400 troops occupied a square mile of Tokyo south of the Imperial Palace, giving them total control over the Diet Building, Japan's parliament, the Prime Minister's residence, important government offices, the War Ministry, and the Army General Staff offices. But the rebels had set out to inaugurate a Showa-era restoration that would utterly reform Japan. They were not satisfied with assassinating a few old men and occupying a few government offices. They needed the emperor to approve of their actions and to issue an imperial declaration beginning the reforms that they dreamed of. All of this was just prelude. After killing the old finance minister Takahashi, those 100 rebel soldiers had marched directly to the imperial palace, and they had informed the gate guards that they were there to reinforce the defenses in light of all the, you know, assassinations that were happening that morning. This detachment had been specially chosen for this mission because their unit was actually on official duty as the emergency relief company for the palace guards. Suspecting nothing, the palace guards commander ordered the rebels to take over guard of one of the palace gates. Now, the rebel plan was to fortify this gate and then open it for their comrades. A force of 400 more rebel soldiers was waiting outside for their signal. But someone warned the palace guards that the smart young officer in charge of this relief company was one of those young officers, and they were forced at gunpoint to leave the palace grounds. Their plan, crafted to imitate an incident from the Meiji Restoration, had been to control access to the emperor, never to directly threaten him, but to only allow those ministers who favored their cause to see him. They believed that they could, let's just say, allow the emperor to make the correct decision. Now, that plan was in shambles. And remember also that the Shoah restoration that's being demanded by the rebels is the vaguest of vague notions. It's like a sign at a demonstration that only reads, stop doing bad things, do good things instead. Dawn, February 26. The young officers are now rebels. Three of their six targets are dead. One is wounded, one escaped, and the Prime Minister is hiding in a closet in the maid's quarters of his official residence. Everyone believes he is dead. They have failed to occupy the Imperial Palace. The Emperor remains free, but no one can say how he will react to this rebellion. The rebel-occupied section of Tokyo is barricaded, sealed off with barbed wire and sentries. And then... Nothing happened. The Tokyo Metropolitan Police, the military police, and the rest of the army units in Tokyo did nothing. The young officers' senior commanders ordered that the rebels be supplied with regular meals. But even as the excruciating nothing was playing out on the streets, the real rebellion was progressing through political channels. The young officers had always known that they would need support from sympathetic senior officials to accomplish anything real. Important generals sent trusted allies to talk to important ministers of state. Imperial princes connected to the army and the navy made suggestions to their friends in the imperial household about who ought next to be prime minister. At the home of the war minister, inside rebel-held territory, a group of sympathetic senior officers convinced the war minister to travel to the palace and inform the emperor of the righteousness of the rebels' cause. This meeting is a formality, really. The war minister we know is shown sympathy to the rebels in the past, but being pressured in this way allows him to save face in the case that the uprising fails. Elsewhere, one of the rebels sent his father-in-law, Hirohito's chief aide-de-camp, 
to deliver the same message to the emperor. War minister and aide-de-camp both tried to convince Hirohito that the young officers were acting nobly, with the best of intentions, and yes, they had made some mistakes, but they were young men, and they were doing it for the emperor and for the nation. The war minister suggested that the best approach for this was for Hirohito to create a new cabinet that would be led by military officers and would reform the economy and give the military more money. But Hirohito, quiet, retiring, amateur marine biologist Hirohito, was enraged. The rebels, he said during one of these meetings, had killed my advisors and are now trying to put a silk rope around my neck. I shall never forgive them, no matter what their motives. He called them mutineers and demanded they be put down at once. And he was ignored. There was a body in Imperial Japan called the Supreme Military Council. In wartime, they were the highest military advisors to the emperor. But for years now, with no declared war on, it had become a place of exile for Imperial Way faction generals who had proven themselves too politically dangerous for active service but too popular for outright dismissal. Throughout the 26th, they drafted and then distributed a proclamation that was carefully and deceitfully crafted to imply that the emperor had personally given the rebellion his blessing. The war minister, frustrated in his initial attempt to sway the emperor, now went to what remained of Okada's cabinet, and he bullied them into letting him declare martial law in Tokyo. Declaring that the troops would be used to suppress communist elements, this allowed him to turn over direct command of most of the troops in Tokyo to a senior officer sympathetic to the rebels. Officers opposed to the rebellion had been calling up reinforcements from nearby districts, but as these units arrived, they too were assigned to the martial law forces. During all of this, the rebels never made any attempt to recruit the people of Tokyo to their side. This was not a mass movement. They viewed this as an internal military clash, and they thought it would be shameful to involve civilians. So imagine for a moment what this must have been like for the people of Tokyo. Suddenly, overnight, a square mile of the city center is blocked off by barbed wire, and there are soldiers everywhere. They're saying that the prime minister is dead, but no one is telling you anything about what's happening or why. And at the same time, the rebels' opponents were mustering their forces. The palace guards, at least, were ready to fight if necessary to prevent the rebels from seizing control of the emperor. And there were divisions outside the capital that were staunchly opposed to the rebellion. And although they did not know it yet, the emperor himself remained adamant that the mutineers must be suppressed, and he was increasingly furious that nothing was being done. But perhaps most importantly of all, there was the navy. There had always been a rivalry between the army and the navy, and even if the navy was generally nationalist and militarist, they had very little sympathy for the young officers or the Imperial Way faction. And more than that, among the six men that the rebels tried to kill on February 26th, three of them, Saito, Suzuki, and Okada, were former admirals. Aw, you gone and done it now. On February 27th, the 40 ships of the First Fleet entered Tokyo Bay and leveled their massive guns on the city. Marines landed with tanks and took up defensive positions at naval installations around the city. One admiral even drew up plans to evacuate the emperor to a battleship from which position he could personally direct the shelling of rebel-occupied Tokyo. That same day, the 27th, one day after the wave of assassinations that touched off the crisis, Prime Minister Okada escaped rebel-held territory. 
He had been discovered in his hiding spot in the maid's quarters by a loyal military policeman. Fearing that his superiors were in league with the rebels, this policeman kept his discovery secret until he could inform an officer who could be trusted. Now conspiring with some of Okada's most trusted allies, they convinced the rebels to allow a memorial service for the prime minister, who, again, everyone still thought was dead. They invited a host of mourners who were all around Okada's age. And then during the service, two policemen and a loyal maid snuck down to Okada's hiding place. They dressed him in Western-style clothes, gave him big sunglasses and a cold mask to cover his face, and then they led him into the room with all of his mourners. One of their allies ran out and told the rebel soldiers guarding the gathering that one of the old guests had fainted and needed to be taken home. Another ally pulled up in a car. Okada was carried to it, and he was driven safely past the rebel sentries. The emperor's chief aide-de-camp, the same ally of the rebels who had tried to convince the emperor to approve their actions on the 26th, returned on the 27th to see if Hirohito had changed his mind. Far from it. Furious that nothing had been done to suppress the rebellion, Hirohito now threatened to take personal command of the imperial guards and crush the rebels himself. Informed that the emperor was set against them, the rebels now professed their loyalty to the concept of emperor and declared that they were performing their highest duty to Japan. A proper emperor could not be opposed to them. Therefore, the actual objections of the actual emperor were no doubt merely caused by the influence of his bad advisors. As February 27th wore on, allies of the rebels proposed various compromises. What about a cabinet led by this general? What about this admiral? How about this prince who, we promise, really hated the London Naval Treaty? What do you want? And this is where the alliance between the Imperial Way faction and the rebels broke down. Each of these compromises would have given the Imperial Way faction all the political gains that they had wanted to get out of this little revolt. If the young officers had taken any of these deals and gone home, their newly empowered allies could have covered for them, ensured they received only the most favorable of trials, only the most insignificant of punishments, saved their careers. But they didn't want careers and political gains for senior officers with whom they sometimes kind of agreed. They wanted the whole impossible thing. They wanted the Showa restoration, whatever they thought that was going to be. And it was the same for the emperor and the faction opposed to the rebels. Compromise was the same thing as defeat. So, as afternoon turned to evening on the 27th, things began to happen again. Rebel forces surrounded the Peers Club, where 15 of Japan's highest nobility were gathered for a meeting. They held the Peers for several hours, attempting to convince or intimidate them into supporting the Showa Restoration. As night fell, the rebels began to fortify their positions, erecting machine gun posts on the streets of Tokyo and stockpiling ammunition. No shots were fired, but the rebel leaders debated launching a second wave of attacks. Now, fearing that the rebels would resort to violence again, army officials at last transmitted the emperor's order to suppress the rebels to General Kashii, the commander of the martial law forces. But remember, Kashii was a rebel sympathizer, and so when February 28th arrived, he was still meeting with other officers, most of whom were also sympathizers, trying to figure out a way to obey his orders without, you know, actually obeying his orders. News of the order was leaked to the rebels. Exhausted and demoralized by the realization that the emperor would not be their savior, the young officers divided into two camps. A small corps of idealists wanted to fight on until the end. 
The rest decided they were ready for it to be over. There are occasional mentions of suicide over the next 2 minutes and 30 seconds. If you'd like to skip over this section, you should skip ahead now to the 78 minute and 20 second mark. If the Emperor would only accord them the honor of an Imperial messenger carrying an Imperial order to kill themselves, then they would do so. Informed of this request, the Emperor declared that the mutineers were not his soldiers anymore. If they wanted to kill themselves, they would have to do it on their own. The rebels declined. Throughout the afternoon of the 28th, as government troops massed outside rebel positions, the rebels fortified the buildings under their control, distributed cigarettes and sake to their soldiers, and made farewell speeches to the crowds of watching civilians. At 8.30 p.m. on February 28th, under intense pressure from the emperor and the cabinet, General Kashi announced that he would take drastic action to suppress the rebels. The operation would begin the following morning. That night, three soldiers died by suicide. An ordnance officer who had failed to prevent the rebels from obtaining their ammunition shot himself in the regimental barracks. Likewise, a sergeant who had supplied the rebels with food. And a lieutenant who was friends with the young officers but not part of their movement, who could not bear to see them become traitors, died, along with his young wife, at their home in Setagaya. The morning of February 29th. All rail and road communication between Tokyo and the rest of Japan has been severed. Traffic is stopped in downtown Tokyo. Residents near the rebel-occupied sections are evacuated, and those in nearby neighborhoods are told to close their shutters and stay on the ground floor. The emperor, with his rebel-sympathizing brother Prince Chichibu in tow, has gone to an observation post to watch the operation. 9 a.m. February 29th, 76 hours after the assassinations of Saito and Takahashi, the loyalist tanks begin crossing the rebel lines. There was no resistance. The enlisted soldiers and non-commissioned officers who had joined the rebels were no longer willing to fight. They had been convinced that joining the rebellion was their duty to the emperor. It was now clear that they had been deceived. By one o'clock that afternoon, the NCOs and soldiers had all deserted, or been sent away by their demoralized officers. The last officer to release his soldiers told them that he would atone for everything with his death. He asked them to sing the company song, and while they did, he shot himself in the head. He survived, but two others among the young officers killed themselves. The rest chose to live on and face trial. The snow that had begun falling as the rebels left their barracks on the night of February 26th melted during the evening of the 29th. That's not a metaphor I made up, by the way. The snow actually did start falling as the rebellion began, and then it melted when it ended. That's Mother Nature's metaphor. During the trials, the rebels were abandoned by the senior Imperial Wave faction officers who had once encouraged them and who the rebels had hoped to empower. The war minister, who had tried to convince the emperor to bless the rebels, now testified that all of those actions had merely been a ploy to convince the rebels to stand down. General Mazaki, who the rebels loved most of all and who they had put forward as their only choice for prime minister, now took the stand to scold the rebels for attempting to involve senior officers in their shameful treason. The young officers who participated in the rebellion were convicted and executed. They were young men. They left behind young wives and young children. The senior officers, for the most part, escaped unpunished. The Zaibatsu leaders who had funded the young officers were interrogated but never charged. One general, an enemy of the Imperial Way faction, wrote, How disgusting it is to watch these rascals, 
holding in one hand the matches and in the other one the water hose, setting fire and putting it out at the same time, inciting the pure young officers, pleading their cause, and then claiming credit for having put them down. Still, the Imperial Way faction officers were discredited, and in the ensuing years they were purged from the army. But their replacements demanded all of the same things, bigger budgets for the military, expansionist foreign policy, totalitarian economic control, military government, and ultimately, war with Great Britain, the Soviet Union, and the United States. Whenever the civilian government pushed back, the militarists only had to point to the young officers' revolt and the assassinations of Takahashi, Saito, and Watanabe. Give us what we want, or who knows what might happen. Next time on episode 2.33, a long time ago we used to be friends. We cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 32 and the pilot with the turtle tattoo. Will you be my energy tank? It's a fool who goes spelunking in the chambers of the human heart. A sex metaphor. Some very weird faces. Gross, I hate it. Kono presha. And Dangar. Exposure to Sirocco may cause long-term effects including listlessness, death wish, plant abandonment, mood swings, galgoog, wanderlust, quattrolust, caginess, and in some cases, death. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Camille and Sarah OTP, on any busy street corner. We will totally hear you. The music used in the TNN is Obliteration by Kevin MacLeod. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. And the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. We are never doing a five-hour episode. <laughs> if we ever did a five-hour anything, it would be like a live stream for charity. Yeah. Because it's the only bow in her quiver. Asnaji can have little ice cream as a treat. Yes, he can. Who the heck? <laughs> this is a long, complicated sentence. Sorry. That's okay.
so that you would appreciate how, appreciate how clever I am. listen to your long one it's gonna be long I know. how long is it it might be the longest one i've ever written oh my god tom okay <laughs> just imagine these guys today on the internet Ugh. i'd rather not thanks thanks